0: Let's take out our Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 8, the book of Hebrews chapter 8. We read this passage of Holy Scripture in connection with the teaching of our Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 19, found on page 11 in the back of the Psalter. But now let's give our attention to the reading of the Word of God. Now of the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. We have such an high priest who is set at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, and not man. For every high priest is ordained to offer gifts and sacrifices, wherefore it is of necessity that this man have somewhat also to offer for if he were on earth, he should not be a priest, seeing that there are priests that offer gifts according to the law, who serve unto the example and shadow of heavenly things. As Moses was admonished of God when he was about to make the tabernacle, for see, saith he, that thou make all things according to the patterns showed to thee in the mount. But now hath he obtained a more excellent ministry, by how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant, which was established upon better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then should no place have been, fought, have been sought for a second. For finding fault with them, he saith, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they continued not in my covenant, and I regarded them not, saith the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind and write them in their hearts, and I will be to them a God and they shall be to me a people. And they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least to the greatest. For I will be merciful unto their unrighteousness, and their sin and their iniquities will I remember no more. In that he saith a new covenant, he hath made the first old. Now that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. May God bless the reading of his word to our hearts and our lives. Let's turn now to the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 19. Question and answer 50. Why is it added and sitteth at the right hand of god because christ is ascended into heaven for this end that he might appear as head of his church by whom the father governs all things question and answer 51 what profit is this glory of christ our head unto us first that by his holy spirit he pours out heavenly graces upon us his members and then that by his power he defends and preserves us against all enemies. Question and answer 52. What comfort is it to thee that Christ shall come again to judge the quick and the dead? That in all my sorrows and persecutions, with uplifted head I look for the very same person who before offered himself for my sake to the tribunal of God, and has removed all curse from me to come as judge from heaven, who shall cast all his and my enemies into everlasting condemnation, but shall translate me with all his chosen ones to himself into heavenly joys and glory. Hebrews chapter 8, beloved, reminds us what a privilege it is that we are under the new administration or the new form of God's covenant of grace. The pro- the writer to the Hebrews begins by saying in verse 1, of the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. And perhaps for homework you can read the things that the writer has spoken of in the first seven chapters of the book. But now as he's transitioning to the subject of how much better the new form or the new administration of God's eternal covenant is on this side of the coming of Christ, he reminds his readers and he reminds us this is the summary, this is the kernel, this is the nugget of our Christian faith. We have a high priest in heaven. He sits at the right hand of The throne of majesty, and he is in heaven our priest. He ministers in the heavenly sanctuary. You understand, beloved, that when the writer is talking about a new covenant or a better covenant, he isn't talking about a different covenant than the saints in the Old Testament belong to. The saints in the Old Testament belong to the same covenant that we do, a covenant that is made by God, by himself, with his chosen people. A covenant that he does not set conditions in, and we have to meet him halfway by keeping those conditions, but a covenant that he makes, he chooses us, and he brings us into his covenant. This covenant is... Unbreakable. Once God has chosen us, he's never going to go back on that choice. And therefore, that, our, the covenant of God is eternal. It is everlasting. It, is, it endures in this world and will endure in the world to come. Because it is founded on the covenant relationship that God has within himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The new covenant is not a different covenant. But it is a better one. The writer says that the administration, how God ministers his covenant to us on this side of the coming of Christ is better than he ministered his covenant or mediated his covenant with his people in the Old Testament. And the writer draws our attention to some of the contrasts that make the new covenant better. First of all, the sanctuary or the holy place in the old covenant was an earthly holy place. It was a physical tabernacle and later a physical temple. And those buildings were glorious in their own way. But for all that they were earthly and they would pass and now they have passed away. The writer also says that in that earthly sanctuary were earthly priests, a high priest and priests who were human, who were only human, and who were also sinners, whose gifts offered and sacrifices made could not take away their own sins, let alone the sins of the people who they offered sacrifice for. They offered according to the law, but they did not offer to take away sins. And finally, the writer says in verse 5 that the ministry of the priests in the Old Testament was a type and a shadow, an example and a shadow of heavenly things. He says in Verse 7, that the covenant, that old form administration of the covenant was not faultless. It doesn't mean that God made a mistake. But it means that God intentionally designed the old administration of his covenant so that it could not obtain salvation for his people. But so that it constantly set before the people their need for a Savior who could take away sins and called them to look ahead to that perfect priest and sacrifice. And that brings us to the fact that the new covenant is better because it is mediated and ministered Administered by Christ. Christ came. He is the man, the Son of God who took flesh and came to earth to live the perfect life and to offer Himself as the only atonement for sin. He was the priest at his own sacrifice who, the writer will go on to say in chapter 9, offered himself once for all. This was the accomplishment of righteousness. By this, Christ fulfilled the covenant obligation of perfect love that God required, that Old Testament Israel could not pay, that we cannot pay, but that Christ did because he was bound by an oath to be the priest that God appointed and anointed him to be and made the sacrifice that God determined that he should accomplish. And now, says the writer to the Hebrews and to us, Not only do we have a high priest who offered himself before on the cross, who shed his blood to blot out the handwriting of our sins against us, who fulfilled righteousness in his life and in his death, but we have such a high priest who is now set down at the throne of the right hand of the majesty in the heavens. His work on earth has been accomplished. He has finished our righteousness. But he has gone to the heavenly sanctuary, the true tabernacle which the Lord pitched and not man, in order to bestow, to give to us, to make us partakers in the righteousness and life that he obtained for us by his life and by his death. So that as the new covenant people of God, the words of Jeremiah 31 verses 31 through 34, which are quoted in Hebrews 8 verses 8 through 12, are fulfilled in us. And are being fulfilled today. This is what we confess. This is what we need to understand by our confession. We believe in Jesus sitting at the right hand of God. We believe that he's in heaven, that he has ascended into heaven. But added to that, we believe that he is sitting at the right hand of God. Until the time when we believe he will come again. For judgment. This is our privilege. That's what the writer is intending to impress upon his readers. You have a privilege that the Old Testament people of God did not have. They were saved as much as you are saved. But you have the privilege of living on the other side. On this side of the finished righteousness obtaining work of Jesus Christ. And now you are called to look to him as your priest in the heavenly sanctuary and to look for him to come again to judge the living and the dead. We're going to focus this morning on on our confession of Jesus seated at God's right hand. We'll touch on his coming again for judgment, but our focus is on our confession that Jesus is now at God's right hand. We'll consider first the glorious truth, and secondly, the blessed benefit of this. The writer to the Hebrews says that we have such an high priest who is set, or who is seated, who has taken his seat on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. The writer is bringing out the fact that Jesus Christ belongs to the triune God. Our high priest is set at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. And the majesty in the heavens is God the Father. And now seated at his right hand is God the Son in our flesh. The writer is repeating something that he said at the very beginning of the book in chapter 1, verse 3, that Christ, being the brightness of the Father's glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. That idea of majesty reminds us that God is king, that we, as members of God's covenant, do not belong to a democracy, do not belong to even a constitutional monarchy, where there is an elected government that holds power and a figurehead monarch who represents the country, but that we belong to an absolute monarchy where God is king and we are the subjects under his rule, the citizens of his kingdom. God is in the heavens, and he has done whatsoever he hath pleased. God is our Father, but he is majestic and full of glory. letter to the Hebrews and the whole New Testament in reference to Jesus Christ being at God's right hand are emphasizing that he is exalted, that in his human nature he has been exalted to supreme dignity, higher than any human being has ever been exalted. In his deity, in his divine nature, he never was anything less then majestic and glorious. But now in his human nature, as we saw last week too, he has gone to heaven and he is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. The eternal word who was with the Father in the beginning before all the worlds, returned to the glory that he had with the Father before the world was. But the new thing is that he took his human nature with him. As we saw last week, the benefit of confessing that, we, that Jesus is ascended into heaven is that our flesh is there. He took our flesh with him to heaven. He took our true human nature there as a pledge that one day he will take to himself us as members. We have a high priest who in his manhood in which he is identified with us has taken his seat at the right hand of the majesty in the heavens. He is a king. You understand that by right hand, the Bible is using a figure of speech. John 4, verse 24 says that God is spirit. He does not have a body. He is not corporeal. He is not physical in any way. He doesn't have a literal right hand. But the Bible doesn't mean there by using this figure to denigrate or to minimize the importance of understanding that God has a real right hand. The real right hand is God's. Our right hands, such as they are, are the faintest picture of the right hand of God. The things we can accomplish and the things we can do with our right hand are small beings compared to what God in his incomparable heavenly majesty accomplishes with his right hand. Holding the world, keeping the world on its foundations, preserving the creation that he has made. The ground under our feet and the sky over our head. The food on our table. The health in our bodies. But more than that, God saves us by his right hand. His is the true right hand. It's a symbol of his infinite power. Not just to do whatever he pleases arbitrarily but to accomplish what he has purposed to do before time in eternity for his own glory and the salvation of his people. That's how the Bible speaks of God's right hand as well. The power of God's right hand is directed according to his sovereign will both to destroy his enemies and to save his chosen people When Israel saw the Egyptians destroyed in the Red Sea and the bodies of Pharaoh and his hosts washing up on the shore, they sang the song of praise that you can read in Exodus chapter 15. And in Exodus 15, verse 6, they sang, Thy right hand, O Lord, is become glorious in power. Thy right hand, O Lord, has dashed in pieces the enemy. They celebrated God's right hand of power, destroying breaking in pieces, their oppressors, the representatives of the kingdom of darkness and evil. By that same work of destruction, the Lord saved his people. And that's what Psalm 20, verse 6 celebrates, where the psalmist says, Now know I that the Lord saves his anointed. He will hear him from his holy heaven." with the saving strength of his right hand. God's power, God's infinite ability to accomplish his will is directed according to his eternal purpose of election and reprobation, to destroy his enemies, to save his people, sometimes by the same act as it was in the Red Sea. As it was in the flood of Noah's day, when by God's right hand, Noah and his family were saved in the ark by the waters of the flood, and his enemies were crushed beneath. And so it was. When the high priest of our salvation was crucified on the cross of Calvary. The right hand of the Lord moved. As the church prays in Acts chapter 4, moved Herod and Pontius Pilate and the Gentiles to take the Lord of glory by wicked hands, by their wicked hands, and crucify and slay him. By that same right hand of God, he accomplished the salvation of his people. the enemies of God and his Christ were gathered together to do whatever his hand and counsel had determined before to be done. And so it was brought to pass so that God might be glorified when his son willingly offered himself as the sacrifice for sin and by his blood Paid the price of our redemption to the justice of God. Now he is exalted. He is in heaven and he is set down, he has taken his seat on the right hand of power. He has received the position of highest authority and supremacy in the universe. He has received the right and is called to exercise the sovereign and majestic power of God on behalf of God the Father. As he declared, as Jesus himself declared in Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, "All power is given unto me in heaven and on earth." The writer to the Hebrews picks up on that when he says, "We have such a high priest who is set down at the throne of the right hand, at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens." That's what we believe, beloved. That's what we mean when we confess that Jesus is set down on the right hand of God. God has lifted his son in our flesh to the place of royal dominion and authority. The significance of this we can speak of in four ways. We've talked about what it means, but now let's look at the significance of, of us using this language, the language of Scripture in the language of the Apostles' Creed, that we believe in Jesus seated at the right hand of God. And we're not to the, to the blessed benefit of this yet. We're looking at the significance of this language. What does it mean that Jesus, what is the significance of the language that Jesus is seated at the right hand of God? And I said we can speak of that in four ways. It signifies four things. And the first is that this language signifies that Jesus is at blessed rest in heaven. He is resting because he has finished his work of redeeming his elect here on earth. This is not the rest of idleness. This is not Christ kicking back in heaven with his hands behind his head by the pool or by the ocean side. This is Christ resting from his finished work. John 19 verse 30, it is finished. Christ resting after finishing the work Of fulfilling and accomplishing our righteousness. Living the perfect life of love and devotion to God. in all of his thoughts, words and deeds. And humbling himself even to the death of the cross. According to the righteous will of God. The Bible uses the language of sitting to speak of rest in other passages. For example, in the Old Testament, <clears throat> Micah 4 verse 4 prophesies of a time when all of God's people will sit, every man under his own vine or under his own fig tree. A sign of rest. Rest. When God's people will not have to rise up to go to war against their enemies, but will be able to rest in the quietness of the Lord's salvation. Or in Isaiah 11, verse 10, when the prophet, looking by by prophetic vision to this event of Christ seated at the right hand of God, says, "...his rest shall be glorious." He will be seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens as a sign that he has finished the work that he came to earth to accomplish. We use this language as well. When in a court of law, a defense attorney has made his case or when the state prosecutor has made their case, what do they say? The defense rests. The state rests not that there's no activity to accomplish yet but their case has been made their work as far as making their case has been accomplished and they rest from that labor or in our own lives when as 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 parents we come home after a hard day's work we sit down to rest Because our work has been accomplished. So Jesus sits in rest at the right hand of his heavenly father. Secondly, the sitting of our Lord Jesus signifies his royal majesty and glory. We touched on this already, but... Think about how this was foreshadowed in the Old Testament, especially by King Solomon. In 1 Kings 10, verse 8, Solomon is is pictured as seated on his glorious throne. His incomparably glorious throne, the like of which was not found in any other kingdom on earth. But his servants are spoken of as standing in his presence to hear his instruction and await his direction. Solomon was had the privilege of sitting as a sign of his dignity and royal majesty. His servants stood in his presence to await his direction. Daniel 7 verse 10 speaks of this when it says that thousands, thousands minister unto him and 10,000 times 10,000 stand before him. The prophecy of Daniel 7 is about the exaltation of the, the one that Daniel calls the Son of Man. And you know that Jesus took this name for himself in the Gospels and referred to himself more than by any other name, by this name, the Son of Man. And he sits while 10,000 times 10,000 stand before him, while the hosts of heaven stand to await his direction and command. Third, the significance of our confession that Jesus sits at the right hand of God is that we confess him as supreme judge, supreme judge in heaven and on earth. A work that he is doing now and a work that we will see him accomplish in person when he comes again to judge the living and the dead. You know that in our manner of speaking too we often speak of a judge taking his seat in his courtroom to hear the cases that are presented to him and to give and to give a verdict in those cases. David's comfort in Psalm 9 verse 4 is that God has maintained his right and, and his cause and sits in the seat of judgment, maintaining right. And Joel 3 verse 12 says that when God in Christ comes again on earth he will sit to judge the heathen roundabout the lord jesus is sat is sitting now on the right hand of god as judge maintaining and doing right remember especially in regard to this that this is a confession of faith because this isn't necessarily something that is obvious to us as we look around at the world we live in or as we consider the personal lives along which God leads us that there is justice in our lives and in the world that that God is in his heaven judging right through Jesus Christ That Jesus is maintaining right. We see the righteous persecuted in the world. We see the right worship of God increasingly mocked. We see the direction that the world is going. Not toward celebration of the gospel. But toward restriction. Of the proclamation of the gospel and the practice, the open practice of the Christian life and the worship of God. Perhaps in our own life, we see injustice. We've been wronged, and it's hard to get support. Or to have anyone advocate for us. We have been abused. And we have to suffer with that. While our abuser continues in their life seemingly without consequence. Or as the psalmist in Psalm 73. Asaph struggled with. We struggle to make ends meet in our earthly life, to put food on the table, to support our families. While the wicked seem to have no problem not only supporting themselves, but becoming wealthy, successful, powerful, and important in the earth. And then we need to come back to the basics of our faith. The articles of our creed, the confession, and the privilege that Hebrews 8 verse 1 reminds us is ours. We have a high priest who is set down as judge at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. And he will come again to judge the living And the dead. And finally, our confession that Jesus is sitting on the right hand of God signifies the durability and stability of his office as judge and king. The Bible uses the term sit to express the idea of steadfast endurance and unshakable stability. For example, in Psalm 9, verse 7, David confesses, The Lord shall sit forever. The Lord shall endure forever. He hath prepared his throne for judgment. And as Jeremiah is lamenting the destruction of Jerusalem in Lamentations 5, verse 19, he says, Thou, O Lord, remainest. And the word there is sittest. Thou, O Lord, sittest. Forever, Thy throne is from generation to generation. So by the language of Hebrews 8 verse 1 and our confession of faith, we confess the Lord Jesus is sitting unshakably at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. And again, at the very beginning of his letter to the Hebrews in chapter 1, the writer draws this contrast very powerfully by quoting from Psalm 102 in regard to the heavens and the earth. And he says, They shall perish, the heavens and the earth shall perish, but thou remainest. They shall wax old as doth a garment, as a vesture shalt thou fold them up and they shall be changed but thou art the same and thy years shall not fail this is the god we worship this is the christ we serve this is the mediator whose position at the right hand of god we are called to contemplate and whose and have the privilege To confess. All of this is comprehended in the sitting of the Lord Jesus at the right hand of God, his rest, his royalty, his righteous judgment, and his unshakable endurance. This isn't something we're called, though, to contemplate with our minds, but it is something to embrace with our hearts. These are words that the Heidelberg Catechism reminds us are words of comfort, are are words that reinforce the only comfort we have in life and death, which is that none of us belong to ourselves. We, none of us are ourselves, but in body and soul, we belong to the faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who purchased us by the blood he shed. When as our only high priest and the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, he shed his blood to blot out our sins, to accomplish righteousness, to lay the foundation for our salvation. Hebrews 8 verse 2 alludes to what the Heidelberg Catechism says is the first benefit of confessing that Jesus is at the right hand of God, which is that by His Holy Spirit He pours out heavenly graces on us, His members, Remember that even though Jesus sitting at the right hand of God signifies his rest from his finished work of accomplishing our righteousness in his earthly ministry, it is not the rest of inactivity. Christ has gone to heaven in order to undertake another phase of his work as our Savior and as as the mediator of God's covenant. And that, hev- that heavenly work of Christ is to minister in the true tabernacle, in the heavenly sanctuary that God built and not man. He discharges an official service in the name of God and for our benefit. He is our high priest in heaven. By using the language of pouring out, the Heidelberg Catechism is deliberately referring to the language of Holy Scripture when in Acts chapter 2 and the account of Pentecost, 50 days after Jesus' resurrection and 10 days after his ascension, the Bible speaks of the ascended Jesus receiving the promise of God, the promise of the Holy Spirit As his peculiar possession to direct and to pour out as he wills on his people. And by the Holy Spirit, Jesus pours out heavenly graces on us, his members. Don't miss the abundance of God's grace that is brought out in this language. He pours out heavenly graces, many graces. This is John 1 verse 16 as well. Of God's fullness have we all received. And grace upon grace. That comes from the Lord Jesus seated at the right hand of God. And what are those graces? Well, beloved. We don't have time to talk about all of them. But the writer to the Hebrews gives us good place to start in The rest of chapter 8, when he quotes from Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34, which reveal what are the privileges and the benefits we have as those who belong to God's new covenant of grace. Verse 12, I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. That's a grace. That's the grace of the forgiveness of our sins. The undeserved favor of God according to which he declares in our consciousness to our hearts personally that we are not obligated to pay the price for our sins because the blood of Christ was shed to redeem us already. When we pray, as Jesus taught us, forgive our debts, the Lord Jesus hears that prayer in his heavenly sanctuary and he pours out by his Holy Spirit the grace of forgiveness into our hearts so that we receive of his fullness. We know that our sins are pardoned. The burden of our guilt is lifted and we can continue our life rejoicing because our sins are forgiven, because God has cast them into the sea of his forgetfulness when he cast them into the sea of the blood of Christ. That's a grace. How about the grace of verse 11? They shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least to the greatest. Isn't that what we talked about last Sunday evening, beloved? By this we know that we know Him. If we keep His commandments. That personal assurance that we have that we abide in Jesus. That there's a living connection that we call faith. Between our heart and the heart of Jesus. And that that living connection of faith. That abiding in Christ. Means that His life Flows into us and gives us the grace to live a new and holy life of obedience to his commandments and submission to the revealed will of God. By this we know that we know him. Or how about this, beloved, verse 10 that God writes his law on our minds and in our hearts so that we don't need as Israel in the Old Testament did to hear the law of God given to them from Mount Sinai by the hand of Moses to be scared out of their wits by the revelation of God on Mount Sinai descending in fire in a in cloud and in smoke With the sound of a trumpet. And to hear God's word to Moses. Don't let anybody touch the mountain. Don't let any man or beast come near. Lest they drop dead. Or be thrust through with an arrow. But God says. He writes his word and his law in our hearts. Jesus does that through the grace of the Holy Spirit. So that we don't have God's law on two tables of stone, but we have it on the tables of our hearts. And we can, as we heard last Sunday night too, call God's law a delight. We can say with the psalmist, how love I thy law. It's my meditation all the day and all the night because it's written on my heart. It's inscribed on the fleshy table of my my inner person, of my heart, through the work of the Holy Spirit. And I love to love God from the heart. And how about this grace, finally, beloved, at the end of verse 10, I will be to them a God And they shall be to me a people. Think of what Jesus said to his disciples the night before he was crucified that he would send the Holy Spirit who would abide with his people forever and remind us whatever Jesus spoke to us. And this, beloved, these words, I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people, are the covenant formula that you find running through the whole scripture. The writer to the Hebrews isn't coming up with these words out of his sleeve, but he's quoting from Genesis 17, verse 17, and Leviticus 26, verse 12, and Jeremiah 7, verse 23. And he's emphasizing to his readers and to us, this is a grace. This is the grace of God's promise to you. He is your God. You are his people He belongs to you. He gives himself to you. And he receives you to himself in his covenant relationship, in his bond of friendship that he has made with you through Jesus Christ. And having once committed himself to you, he will never leave you or forsake you. He will never let you falter or fail. That's a grace, beloved. To have that promise of God and to be able to say that promise is for me and it is yes to me in Jesus Christ. To say nothing of the grace itself of belonging to God's covenant and to being a member of Christ by faith, which all of these heavenly graces imply and out of which they all flow. But finally, beloved, the benefit of confessing our Lord Jesus at God's right hand is that we have a confession that gives us the assurance of sure protection because by his power, Jesus defends and preserves us against all our enemies. Don't forget that the first enemy Jesus preserves us from is ourselves. Our own sinful nature, which he has subdued and whose dominion he has broken through the work of his spirit in our hearts. But Which we need preservation from each and every day. And which we need defense from moment by moment. The heavenly graces that the Lord Jesus pours out on us, beloved, through his Holy Spirit. Defend and preserve us from being overcome by ourselves, by our own sin, by the temptations that we so easily are attracted to as the devil lays them in front of us. From being overcome and swallowed up in our own besetting iniquities. But also, beloved, not only internal enemies, but external enemies too. The Lord Jesus protects us from, defends us from, and preserves us in the midst of. <clears throat> and again, remember this is a confession of faith. Because experience is so often contrary to the reality of the word of God, or to the reality that the word of God sets before us in language like it does in Hebrews 8. We don't see God's people protected in lands like China and North Korea and, in fact, many nations in the world where the church is persecuted and where God's people are killed all the day long like sheep at the slaughter. We ourselves one day know that persecution will come know that we will not always have the freedoms that we have now to worship God publicly on his day and to live the Christian life publicly as we do. One day it will be true that we and our children will suffer in body as well as soul for righteousness' sake. And that's why now we have to pay attention to our confession that we believe in Jesus seated at the right hand of God because that means he does preserve and defend us from all enemies. Jesus said, don't fear those who kill the body but are not able to kill the soul. When the enemies of Enoch looked for him, God brought him to heaven. We can't expect the same translation, but we can expect the same protection. 1 Peter 1 verses 5 and 6 says that we are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed At the last time. We and our children are safe. Because we are protected. By our. King priest. Who sits at the right hand. Of the throne of the majesty. In the heavens. And to us. Who believe in him. He gives this promise. In Revelation 3 verse 21. To him that overcometh. I will grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my Father in his throne. Look unto Jesus, beloved, the author and finisher of your faith. Amen. Our Father which art in heaven, what a blessed privilege it is to confess that Jesus is seated at thy right hand and to know in our hearts that he is there for us. That these are not just words to speak, but they are promises. Father, we pray that in this day and as we begin our life, our work week again tomorrow, we may live with this conviction that we have such an high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. And that as our priest in the heavenly sanctuary, he pours out day by day his grace on us as members. And as we go about our daily station and calling and faithfulness, He is surrounding and protecting us, defending us and preserving us from all enemies. Giving us the grace to fight the good fight of faith and to lay hold on eternal life. Hear us, Father, for Jesus' sake. Amen.